Um, Today, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the title of this sermon is Inadequately Dressed. When we flip on the television at night, or even watch the news for five minutes, or even glance at the newsstands at the grocery store, We can't deny that this world is not as it should be. We live in a broken world that's full of sin and depravity. But to bring it in even closer, this isn't just a problem with the world around us or everyone else. It's true in our own lives as well. If we're brutally honest, we know that we too are broken people. But why is this? Why is society the way that it is? Why do we all experience a sense of restlessness and find it difficult to live with ourselves and others? Why do we have a sense that we were meant for something more? Well, the good thing is, is that the Bible is a very practical book. It's a book about God, But it's also about humans answering many of the questions that I just raised. In God's goodness, we have his perfect word to show us a clear picture of ourselves. A picture that we don't always see clearly on our own. So with that in mind, let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. From the start, uh, I want us to see this morning that this historic event known as the fall affects every single one of us, whether you're young or old, male or female, CEO or barista, Christian or not. It's easy for us to kind of check out and think, I know this story. What in the world does Adam have to do with me today? But hang with me. I want to show you that this historical narrative affects you every single day. While I'm going to leave the implications of the fall for next week, I want to suggest that what Adam and Eve do in this passage we continue to do today. So, 
Let's jump into the passage again at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's stop right there. In Genesis chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we've seen a pristine and perfect setting which God created. And now, a serpent, somewhat surprisingly, shows up on the scene. Moses is describing something that he wants us to know about this serpent here. Now, Hebrew narrators rarely give character descriptions. But when they do, it's usually a key to understanding what's about to happen with that character. So he says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's almost as if he's saying, pay attention to what this character is about to say or do. Weigh his words carefully. He's crafty. We should also note that the serpent is one of the beasts of the field which God made. The serpent owes its existence to God. It was created by God. And I say this to point out two truths. First, the serpent is not God. Many ancient religions associated snakes with healing and even divinity. Moses wants us to see that this is a creature created by God. He's not God. Second, the evil that we're going to see from the serpent is due to a possession by Satan. This is no doubt a real serpent in which Satan resided and spoke to Eve. This is the same serpent spoken of by John in Revelation 12:9 and later in Revelation 20 verse 2 and described as the devil and Satan the ancient serpent. Satan's purpose here in the garden is to oppose God, to even dethrone God and become God himself to destroy God's crowning achievement in creation. This isn't a mythical creature or an allegory for evil. This is a real event with real characters. Finally, I want you to note that Moses says that the serpent is a beast of the field that who made? The Lord God. The Lord God. Remember, that Genesis 2 shifts from a general name from God, Elohim, in chapter 1, to the specific, relational, covenant name of God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Moses uses this name, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, which will be in contrast to what we see the serpent say next. That's important. So pay close attention to what the serpent says. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? First of all, the serpent speaking. How alarming is that? For, for those of us who have read the story, we're somewhat numb to it, but this is bizarre. There's a serpent in the garden, and it starts talking to Eve. The fact that Eve isn't phased by it should clue us in to just how crafty this beast is. Even more shocking is what the serpent says. 
Instead of using the specific relational name for God, Yahweh Elohim, the serpent speaks in generalities and then questions God. He says, did God actually say? Okay, again, let's just stop right there. Did God actually say? Unless you're questioning outright heresy, these are the most dangerous words that could ever come out of one's mouth. Did God actually say? Now, unfortunately, we live in a day and age where this is all too common. Not only are people questioning God's word in the scriptures, they're even questioning the existence of absolute truth altogether. I think of people like Bart Ehrman, who actually has a book titled Misquoting Jesus, where he calls into question all of scripture and all of the, that God said. This is the modern version of Did God Actually Say? I also think of a guy named John Dominic Crossan. He's part of what's known as the Jesus Seminar. And if you're not familiar with these guys, what they do is they sift through gospel accounts of Jesus' life, and they decide which statements Jesus actually said, according to them. It's kind of funny, actually. If they think Jesus said it, they put a red marble in the bowl. If they think that he might have said it, they put a pink marble in the bowl. If they think he didn't say it, but it contained his ideas, they put in a gray marble. And if they think he didn't say it, they put a black marble in the bowl. The scary thing is that both Bart Ehrman and John Dominic Crossan fly under the banner of biblical scholar. Did God actually say? That's what they're all about. This is scary business. But... It's more widespread than just these, uh, these scholars. Many of us are tempted to repeat this phrase when we come across something that we don't like in the scriptures. Did God actually speak against divorce? Did God actually command us to do church discipline as, as a, a body? Did God actually say that we should love our enemies or that we should live lives of sacrifice to follow him? Did God actually call gossip, drunkenness, and lust sin? While we might not outright reject the words of God, what we do is to try to redefine what God actually meant. We don't let a serpent define what God said, but instead, in our case, it's typically the culture. We let the culture or our own feelings determine what God said. Don't fall into this trap, brothers and sisters. Let God's word determine what God said and nothing else. Let's keep going. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what Satan did there? It's subtle, but it's a malicious distortion of God's word. I think it would be helpful for us just to jump back into chapter 2 and see exactly what God did say as a contrast. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, here it is, 
You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see it? You may surely or, or freely eat of every tree in the garden, God says. Yahweh, the generous, relational God, isn't stingy. When we read what God actually said, it's a statement of liberality, not one of dictatorship. He gives only one, count it one, rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 9, we saw that there are two trees, the tree of life and then this tree. God knows that if they eat from this tree, it'll lead to death. This isn't a dictator God keeping something great from his creation here. This is like a father telling his son, don't go play out in the street. You can play in the living room. You can play in the playroom. You can play in the backyard and everywhere else. But don't play in the street. God's actual statement is a generous one. A statement of care for his children. But Satan twists it and suggests another possible interpretation of God's command. Instead of generosity and liberality, Satan misquotes God to say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Do you see that? Friends, subtle twisting of God's word leads to death and distortion. Don't do it. And I just want to take a moment this morning to address non-Christians that may be here. First and foremost, we're glad that you're here. You're always welcome here. We hope that you felt welcome. You're always welcome here. And for just a moment, I want to speak directly to you. This affects you. I'm assuming that there are a number of things that you've heard and maybe even believe about God that are not truth, but distortions of the truth. Many times people reject what they think is Christianity but what's actually a twisting or a distortion of it. Non-Christian, I want to implore you this morning to actually read the Bible for yourself. Make sure that the God that you're rejecting is actually the God of the Bible. I sometimes like to say, tell me about the God that you don't believe in, because I may not believe in him either. Don't rely on second-hand information from unreliable sources. Make sure that the God that you're rejecting is actually the God of the Bible. So, in verses 2 and 3, Eve responds. First of all, the fact that she even responds to this is telling. Why even entertain such, ac such accusations of God? Look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent has craftily spoken. And Eve has already made the subtle shift. 
Now, again, there's a shift from the generous word of God, who used the word every tree of the garden. Eve merely says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. And then, what does Eve say in verse 3? Eve knows the relational covenant name of God. She knows Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. But she echoes Satan in his generalities. She simply says, God said. Well, this might not seem like a big deal. It is. We can see God becoming more and more and more distant in Eve's mind here. And we know how this works, don't we? It's a lot easier to critique or question someone that we don't know personally, right? Someone who's not near to us. But when we know them by name, we actually have a relationship with them. They're near to us. They're close to us. It's much harder to critique them and to twist their words. Eve has taken God's relational name and distanced it. Eve says in verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, God's command has been altered here. Do you see what Eve did? This time, she didn't reinterpret God's word. She added to it. This idea that Satan planted in her mind of God being a dictator God, it's growing. It's expanding in Eve's mind. God told Adam not to eat from the tree, but what did Eve add? Neither shall you touch it. Neither shall you touch it. Then she refers to the tree by its location and not its significance. Even more, the certainty of death is lessened. God said definitively, you shall surely die. Again, it's subtle, but Eve simply says, lest you die. When God's word is twisted or generalized or added to, our trust of God is on shaky ground. This is why doctrine is so important, church. What we believe about God and what we say about God matters. Doctrine isn't just a dusty Baptist word. It actually affects how we relate to God on a daily basis. Good doctrine leads to trusting God. The more we know God's word and saturate ourselves with it, the harder it is for us to fall into this trap that Eve does. When you're saturated with God's word and you know what God's voice sounds like in the text, it's easy to spot a counterfeit who whispers lies. The dialogue continues in verses 4 and 5 with now Satan's response back to Eve. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If Satan's opposition to God's word was subtle initially, it's out in the open and at full force now. Satan began by asking twisted questions, but now he's directly contradicting God's truth. 
Remember Genesis 2, verse 9. We have two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which could lead to death. Satan, in essence, is taking the tree that could lead to death, and he's telling Eve that this is really life. This is going to set you free. He questions the justice, righteousness, goodness, and even morality of God. He insinuates that God is really the one holding her back. Isn't this how Satan always seems to work? Even today? We're led to believe that sin doesn't really lead to death, but is actually something that we're missing out on. Something that God is holding back from us. Friends, this couldn't be further from the truth. Disobeying God leads to death and separation from the source of life. God himself. That's the truth. God's not holding out on you. He's a generous God who genuinely has your best interest in mind when he forbids something. He sees the results of sin better than anyone. He doesn't want that for us. He's good. And he can be trusted when he speaks. So, the table is set. The bait has been cast into the water. And in verse 6, the centerpiece of the passage begins to run in almost fast motion. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Don't you just want to kind of jump into the text and knock the fruit out of their hands? No, don't do it! The description in verse 6 is really interesting. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Again, going back to chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, Genesis 2, 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up, what? Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's the description of every tree that God made. And yet Eve only focuses in on this one, which she believes that God is unjustly withholding from her. She takes the fruit, eats it, gives some to her husband Adam, who, yes, was with her the whole time and should have spoken up somewhere or everywhere during this conversation. And he ate as well. Well, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds here because we're going to be dealing with this next week. I want to comment on our connection to this awful moment in the text. When Adam acted here, disobeying God and eating the fruit, he acted in our place as our representative. Scripture tells us that when Adam sinned, he wasn't just an individual acting as an individual. We read the text earlier. He was acting as our representative. And Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who's the head of the nation, so Adam was the federal head of mankind. Because of Adam's sin, we, meaning all of us, we inherit original sin and therefore spiritual death. His fall was our fall. And the curse of that fall affects each of us. For more on that, read the rest of Romans chapter 5. Paul makes this point explicitly. I can hear the grumbling now. Adam is our representative. But I didn't elect Adam. R.C. Sproul points out that like our colonist predecessors, we scream, no damnation without representation. How's that fair? I wouldn't have fallen if I were given the chance. The truth is that in reality, we weren't just well represented by Adam. We were perfectly represented by Adam. Again, Sproul notes this. He says that we are judged guilty for Adam's sin because he was our fair and just representative. At no time in all of human history have we been more accurately represented than in the Garden of Eden. To be sure, we did not choose our representative there. Our representative was chosen for us. The one who chose our representative, however, was not King George in the case of the colonist. It was Almighty God. When God chooses our representative, he does so perfectly. His choice is an infallible choice. Okay, Drew. He represented me accurately and perfectly, but still, he's still a representative. It's not me. Yes, but again, Adam was acting on behalf of us. In our legal system, we have something kind of like this. If I go and hire a gunman to go and kill someone, and he does, I can be tried and declared guilty because he killed him on my behalf. He pulled the trigger, not me, but I'm judged to be guilty for a crime that someone else committed because the other person acted in my place. Even more, this idea of, of someone acting in my place isn't something that we want to do away with. It's actually the most beautiful truth that we as Christians could cling to. Because of it, not only does Adam represent us, Christ can represent us in his life, complete obedience, and in his death, in payment for our sin. This idea of being represented is a beautiful truth that we can't let go of. Next week, we'll be dealing with the implications of the fall, so I'm just going to leave it there and move on to verse 7. Adam represented us. But what happens immediately after Adam and Eve eat the fruit here? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Shame. Guilt. They knew that they were naked. 
There's no longer a childlike innocence within them. They didn't become like God in the way that Satan had promised. Sin wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Instead of life, they were ashamed. And they respond by sewing themselves loincloths out of fig leaves. They do what we all try to do. They try to cover themselves up. But that's not adequate. For any of you parents who play hide-and-seek with your kids, you know how this goes, right? Your kids go and hide. They, they think they're hidden really well or covered up, but they're not. They're usually right out in the open. Our, our youngest son, Asher, is hilarious in this regard. He'll be sitting out somewhere with only a toy in his hand covering his face. <laughs> Or his head under a blanket with the rest of his body just out in the open. He thinks he's covered himself up, but not so much. It's inadequate. The same thing happens here. Adam and Eve have inadequately tried to cover themselves up. They've become aware of their loss. And they're trying to deal with it on their own. Again, we repeat the actions of Adam and Eve today. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes three different ways that we try to cover up the loss that we still experience. Number one, we try to cover ourselves up with knowledge or culture. We realize that something's missing, and we try to fill it with more knowledge or world experience. We think if we can just get enough, we'll be okay. Knowledge or culture. Second, politics. We see that the world isn't as it should be. And we think that we can fix it with legislation and finally put things right. But it's inadequate. Third, religion. And I would include works-based religion here. We think that if we can just go to church enough, do enough good, that we can cover over our own sin. Going to church, doing good works, those are, are good things, but only as a response to the gospel. Religion can't cover us. None of these things are adequate coverings. You can't cover yourself. And that's the point. Only God can cover you. Jesus' atoning death on the cross is the only thing that can adequately cover your sin. You see, this covering that they made was superficial. We see a picture of two people who were fearful, ashamed, and most certainly guilt-ridden, but not repentant. They tried to cover themselves up instead of running to God. If you're restless this morning, and you sense that void, and with me, see that the world isn't as it should be, my encouragement to you this morning is to run to God. Don't try to cover yourself up. Only God can cover you. And he did it through the atoning death of his son, Jesus Christ. Every single one of us in this room, without fail, is sinful. 
and affected by this historical narrative in Genesis 3. And Ephesians 2, verse 1, says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins because of it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to say two things to you. First, God's word can be trusted. He's not a dictator who's holding out on you. He loves you, and he's good. Second, see your need for Christ. You can be covered by God when you repent and believe, when you turn and trust in Christ. When you do this, you can have eternal life and relationship with Yahweh, the Lord God. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the Bible. And if you'd like to know more about that, Rob's going to be standing out at the black table after the service. He would love to talk with you. Or you can talk to any other Christian in this room. They would love to talk to you about Jesus. Next, if you're a Christian, I also want you specifically to see your need for Christ in this passage. The gospel isn't something that you just accept and then graduate from. The gospel is still good news for us. And I hope that this passage reminds you of that. Second, I want to plead with you as a Christian to trust God's word. Know it. Saturate your life with it. And when you're tempted to question God, to ask the question, did God really say? I want to encourage you to stand on the truth of God's word. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It can be trusted. It points us to Christ and our need for the gospel every day. But it can't do that when it's simply sitting on your shelf. Read it. Know it. Live it. Share it. God is a gracious and generous God who has revealed himself to us in his word and in his world and most significantly in his son. He's a God who can be trusted in all things. He's a God who sees clearly both what's good and evil. So the question is, will we trust him? Let's pray.